with your career, you should take risks. And you know, if it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world and, and you can you can go and do something else. So take risks. I think volunteer for the non-obvious. And I promise you 99 out of 100 times, they'll be more rewarding. You'll learn more than you would have done in, let's say, the traditional path that you may find yourself on. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast. Before I introduce this week's guest, as always, please leave me a review, guys. I like to read the stuff, the constructive criticism. So I don't care if it's one star. I don't care if it's five stars. I want to read it. I want everybody to hear. Plus, it helps others find the show. So thank you in advance. So I'm sitting here this afternoon with Justin Rounce, Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Technic FMC. How are you doing, Justin? I'm wonderful today. Thank you very much for asking. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Just struggling through these allergies as I I have been it's all spring. year, isn't it? Yeah, it's between that and the mosquitoes. I'm just like, this is not my favorite season. So, oh, <laughs> Well, Justin, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. It's a great question. It's a long story. I'll try to make it brief as I can. But quite honestly, it was something that I fell into by chance. I happened to, to grow up close to the sea in the southern, southeast part of the UK. And it was you know, one of the two or three hubs for oil and gas in the UK happened to be the, one of the, the southern North Sea gas hub. So Great Yarmouth, Lower Stoft, that area. So I uh-huh. grew up in that part of the country, had no idea what the industry was about, had no interest in the industry, actually. But hmm. when I graduated, I, it was kind of in the, the 1980s, mid-Thatcher era, and if anybody who's seen the movie Billy Elliot would remember the coal miners' strike, it was at a time in the UK when there was a lot of uh, tension between the government led by Margaret Thatcher and the various unions, and, and some of them were striking. And it was a time also of high unemployment in the UK. It was about three and a half, I think, million people unemployed at the time. So. So I really had no idea what I wanted to do with myself and came back home, started to look around for, you know, what career would be interesting for me and just happened to to meet some old school friends who for Slumberjay. Mm-hmm. And in 1987, Slumberjay, at least their testing division, which I will always remember fondly, it was called Flow Patrol at the time and were looking for a few people for a short period of time. So it was a kind of a short-term contract where they had, you know, they had picked up some work and they needed some people who were prepared to go offshore. So I went and paid, actually borrowed the money from my mum and dad to go and do an offshore survival certificate that you needed to go offshore in the, in the North Sea. Yeah. And applied for the job. And I was very fortunate because I had some good references from a friend and another person who worked at Flow Patrol or Slumberger at the time. And, and was employed on a three-month contract. 
And so I'll fill a bit in the middle, but I ended up staying 31 years at Slumberjay. So lasted a, a bit longer than three and- months. But <laughs> yeah, that's, really, that's a little while, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it, an unusual way to start. It, I, I didn't come through their normal graduate program, but, but after, you know, I guess doing a good job and volunteering a lot to, to go offshore whenever they needed me to, they kept me on and, and very much invested in me as an individual in terms of training and engineer school and uh, you know, moving me all over the world uh, numerous times. And I was with Slumberjay until just a few years ago. So, so I, didn't, yeah, I didn't set out to be in the oil and gas industry. But Sounds like it found you. It found me and honestly wouldn't change a single thing if I had to do it all again. It's just been hugely uh, rewarding for me and, and my family in terms of having the opportunity to, to live in lots of different places and, you know, get exposed to many different cultures. You know, just we have so many magnificent people in this industry that don't often get uh, spoken about. And so, yeah, if I could rewind the clock back to 1987, I'd, I'd do the same thing all over again. Oh, that's great. That's great. Can you name a couple of places you've lived and like maybe tell us which one was your favorite? (laughs) Well, no, it's hard to pick a favorite. But yeah, we live obviously in the UK and I include England and Scotland in that because we lived in Aberdeen. First time my wife and I moved uh, was to uh, was to Aberdeen. And we lived in Norway. Our first son was born in Norway, then Paris. First time we went to Paris then then spent some time in Africa and Nigeria. Yeah. Then you moved back to the UK, then to the US, then back to UK, but in London this time, then back to the US again, back to Paris again, back to the US again. <laughs> and along the way, we had three more kids. So the first one was born in Norway. The second one was born in France, just outside Paris in uh, uh, Saint-Germain-en-Laye. The third one was, was born here in Houston. Uh-huh. Uh, only my youngest daughter, who's now 17, born in the UK. So only one of them is born in the UK. Wow, all over the place. Yeah, we we've moved all together including, you know, moves within countries. I always count 15 times. My wife seems to think it was a couple of more times. <laughs> and, and at least twice she moved heavily pregnant, so Oh man. I always give her the benefit of the doubt. If if she thinks it's more than 15, it probably is. So. Probably. Yeah, I bet she knows. <laughs> she absolutely knows. Yeah. <laughs> It's much, um, I always say the heavy lifting is done by our families because, you know, when, when you move, especially if you're with the same company, you typically know a lot of people in the place you're moving to. So it's a new office, it's a new job, but there's a sense of familiarity there. And whereas they're not going to an office with the people they know and they're starting a new school or they're setting up a new home, they're trying to find doctors and, te- you know, dentists and, you know, and if it's, in a non-English speaking country where you you know you don't necessarily know the language very well. Right. Super challenging. So it, they the family and especially my wife have, have always done all the heavy lifting when it comes to moving around. Wow. Yeah. And I, I understand that to an extent. You know, my dad worked offshore for a long time. So we didn't move around or anything, but it was, you know, not seeing him all the time. It kind of got to me it's, as it's a tough. kid. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, speaking of challenges, I mean, that it, it sounds like that was definitely a challenge, but more from a, you know, a career standpoint, what were some issues and challenges you had to, to face? Because I mean, you kind of stayed in the same place for 31 years. You know, you can 
group the challenges into you know what what are the personal challenges and i think i I touched on some of those but i think from an industry challenge i think what's been really interesting to challenge it's uh it's also it's been an opportunity is you know the industry has really evolved dramatically i think since i joined on the back of what was the biggest oil crash in the mid 80s yeah yeah i was gonna bring that up Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I think the industry was, I would say, really battered and bruised after that period of time. And But really, you know, from 87 through to the early 2000s, there were cycles, but I would say the cycles were infrequent and the amplitude, it was not great. So, you know, if you kind of took a straight line, it's generally a growth cycle from through the 90s and into 2000s. And I think since that time, we've started to see that the the cycles have increased in frequency and and they've increased in amplitude in the sense that you know the the down cycles have been deeper and the up cycles have been you know higher and but they've been more frequent and i think it's really presented us as an industry with with some real challenges in terms of how we how we have to do things differently and i think quite frankly as a as an industry we've responded responded generally quite well over the years we've always been able to adapt to to the changing environment as hard-headed as we are but yeah yes. <laughs> i mean we are we're not the most agile in some respects but in other respects we're incredibly resilient and i think we've always adapted you know to some degree to be able to cope with you know with all the different the different you know changes over the last two or three decades but i think now we probably are faced with uh, you know one of the biggest challenges that we'll ever face as an industry with you know what's happening relative to an energy transition and i think with the last year and obviously we've all had a hugely challenging year with uh, with, with covid and, and the the impact of that you know, on the economy yes uh, coupled with other you know challenges we've had specific to our industry with with respect to the oil prices. But I think now there's a momentum that is, I don't, I'm not sure anybody could have predicted around the energy transition that's really going to force us to, to really transform as an industry. And actually, you know, I'm not at all afraid of that. I'm really confident if the energy transition is going to happen and be successful, then there are no better companies than those in the oil and gas industry to make that happen. So, oh yeah, definitely, I you know, absolutely agree with that for sure. You know, there's lots of rhetoric, and in terms of pace at which it will happen, and I think uh, people are over optimistic in in many cases. And I think, but you know, it will happen, and and, and uh, you know, we we have to embrace it. We have to drive the change. We, we need to be part of that agenda. And I'm really confident that we'll play a pivotal role, uh, which will ensure. The, the traditional oil and gas business is is sustainable, has uh, you know at least a, a medium term future, notwithstanding things that we have to do in order to you know reduce the impact of the industry from a carbon intensity perspective. But also that you know will be the industries and the companies that will that will really drive the energy transition you know for you know for the for the long term. So so I'm very optimistic actually about about what what we can do and the role we can play going forward. Excellent. So let's talk about what you do as executive vice president and chief technology officer. Yeah, it's the overly long title is not necessarily reflective of everything that I do. I have 
good fortune to have a very diverse role, actually. So yes, in terms of chief technology officer, that's just what people could imagine responsible for the the long-term innovation and technology within our company. And we are a technology company. So it's it's something we is deeply rooted in our culture that we're all very passionate about and we invest a lot in. And so within that, there's the kind of the innovation part, but there's also, you know, we, we deliver products through projects. And so we have you know, engineering, manufacturing and a supply chain organization that is that is part of my team that deliver into our business partners who run the projects. I also have a few other kind of responsibilities. So uh, HSE, health, safety and environment function reports to me as does. Oh, interesting. I have the IT organization. I have digital and I also have corporate development, which includes the kind of the long term strategy and thinking of the company along with mergers and acquisitions. And so that's an odd mix, but... Yeah, uh, it's a very odd mix. I've never heard that before. Well, I guess because uh, one great benefit with being around a long time is I've done lots of different jobs and I was fortunate to work for a company that, uh, that really challenged you in, in different roles, not only different geographies, but in different roles. So, so you know, so I've run uh, mergers and acquisitions for a big company and, uh, and, and, you know, been heavily involved in engineering, manufacturing, and then on the flip side, strategy and operations and line management. So none of the functions that fall under under my umbrella really are new to me it's roles that i've done in the past and so it it sort of makes sense in a way uh, although sometimes you wear a lot of hats <laughs> you wear a lot of hats and sometimes you know one will kind of dominate a little more than others and and obviously as a company we we've been very active in terms of the M&A space with the spin out of a downstream business to form a new company which was Technip Energies and so i led that process so that took a lot of my time. But, you know, again, I'm very fortunate to have a fantastic team so that if I do end up having to dedicate more time to one thing or something else, you know, things just continue as you would expect. And so the the spin-off of Technip Energies did certainly take a lot of my time over the last 18 months. But uh, the rest of the team, whether it be engineering, manufacturing or HSE, have, has always done a stellar job. So it allows me to have uh, diversity of, of role. And, and that really, I, I certainly, I get very stimulated by that because yeah, I was going to say, you can't get bored. There's no way. Definitely. You definitely can't get bored. And uh, intellectually, it's very uh, stimulating and challenging, which I, which I really enjoy. So I'm not complaining if I really, if I didn't have the diversity of responsibilities, I probably would be complaining because I do, I do very much enjoy the diversity of the role. That's awesome. So if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? I guess that depends who I would be talking to. Let me assume if it's somebody, let's say, joining the industry or joining a company. And, and, and I have kids, as I said, you know, four kids between the ages of 17 and 25. So they get lots of free advice from me all the time. Whether <laughs> not. So, dad um, advice. Yeah, yeah dad, dad <laughs> advice. And I'm sure 90% goes in one ear and out of the other one. But if they, hey, if they retain 10%, that's probably more than I did. So that, that would be great. <laughs> I think it just in general, for people who are starting out in their careers, whether it's in our industry or, or others, hopefully in our industry, I always try to give the same advice. And, and the fact that, as we just talked about, I have lots of different responsibilities in Technip FMC is because I had a lot of diversity within within my career. And that doesn't 
come by chance. So obviously you have to be given an opportunity, but the other thing is you have to be really prepared to tread a path that is not necessarily obvious. And so, you know, a lot of my, my peers in my younger career, you know, were very focused on line management. You know, you've got to get line, in line management and take, you know, the next level up and the next level up and the next level up. And it was kind of a um, an obvious, I would say, you know, ladder within a line management function. Very early, I was given opportunities to do something else and, and I really embraced them. And once you've done that once, once you take a role that's non-obvious and you realize that actually it's more rewarding, more fulfilling, you learn more, then you become a lot more confident about kind of putting your hand up and volunteering to do another non-obvious job. And I've done lots of them, many in the beginning because I was willing to do it. And, and if if somebody was asking for a volunteer, then you know, most of the people in the room would take a step back and I'd take a step forward. And so there's, there's risks associated with that. And so my, my, you know, one of my pieces of advice I give, and certainly to my kids also, is take risks. You know, there's, there's really, there's not a downside. With your career, you should take risks. And you know, if it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. And, and you, can, you can go and do something else. So take risks. I think volunteer for the non-obvious. And I promise you, 99 out of 100 times, They'll be more rewarding. You'll learn more than you would have done in, let's say, the traditional path that you may find yourself on. You know, personally, they'll be more fulfilling. You may get to travel a bit more. And so I've done a lot of that. And, and as time goes on and get recognized for being firstly flexible, but also adaptable, then you get more of those opportunities. And uh, so it, it becomes a little bit self-fulfilling. So very fortunate to have started my career somewhere. That, that does offer, you know, diversity of opportunity, but also you have to embrace it. And I think yeah, I see exactly the same characteristics and attributes here at Technip FMC. We really give people the opportunity to, to have a varied career. And so I'm always telling either interns or, or new hires or, you know, young engineers in the company not to be afraid to take a risk and volunteer for something that is perhaps not so obvious for for their career, but, but often turns out to be hugely valuable for their career. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Just a quick interruption to share a few things that are going on in October. We have not one, but two industry mixers this month, one on October 7th and one on the October 21st. Just check out our social. They're always great events, and the money that you help us raise goes to fight human sex trafficking, and you get to network with oil and gas executives. We have a new show that just came out, Energy Transition Podcast. Also remember, we have 14 other podcasts for your listening pleasure. And then the end of this year, we'll be full media partners for the 23rd World Petroleum Congress, December 5th through 9th. The World Petroleum Congress has not been in Houston over 30 years. So make sure you put space in your calendar. Come check us out. And then finally, join the OGDN Street Team on LinkedIn. It's our all-volunteer group that's really going places. I'll see you again next month. Very good. Very good. And not only that, you don't want to regret not doing something too, right? Yeah, there's, you know just no value in regretting a decision. And I'm trying to, since you say that, I'm thinking back now and say, was there, was there any decisions that I regretted? And, and I really don't know that there were. I mean, you always look back and think, oh, maybe I'd have done that a little bit differently if I could rewind the clock. But, but broadly speaking, yeah, I've not regretted anything. And I think that 
the test of that is is if you had the opportunity to go back, would you do things differently? And, and I absolutely wouldn't. Very good. Very good. So what book influenced you the most and why? I think it would be hard to pick one book, so I'm going to have to think about I, I have to say my philosophy in book reading has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And it used to be that I would read, I mean, early in my career, I was reading engineering books and, uh, you know, fundamentals of petroleum engineering. And stuff <laughs> and stuff and All the goodies. Super techie and nerdy stuff. <laughs> Then, you know, when you come out of the field and you start to get into management, you know, I read lots of management books and, you know, then was involved in mergers and acquisitions. A lot of you read lots of books that kind of help you understand different transaction types and deals and lots of case studies. And so, yeah, but I used to read, you know, lots and lots and lots of business books and I've traveled a lot. I've always traveled a lot in my career. And so my, you know, the ability to be able to access good reading when you're traveling, I think, is not only uh, invaluable, but it's actually a lifesaver. You obviously have lots of, lots of uh, dead time. And so I'd always, you know, have two or three books in my bag. And, you know, thank goodness for the invention of, you know, book readers and Kindles and iPads, because you could all of a sudden have, you know, 100 or 200 books in, a, in one device. So, so I used to read lots of, lots of business books, but I would say probably... You know, seven or eight years ago, I started to pivot to non-business books simply because I found that, you know, they became a little bit repetitive, even though the themes were different. Perhaps the narrative was different. The takeaways were were, were similar. And I think it's obviously it's, a, it's probably a, a gross statement in terms of, um, you know, saying all business books pretty much are the same these days, but they're not. But my interest in, in them kind of started to started to waver and I wasn't I wasn't getting so much from them so and so I started to read other things you know short stories fictional sometimes non-fictional and fictional but not business related books and I've really enjoyed those I've always tried as much as possible to use use both sides of the brain the analytical and the creative part and uh, and, uh, and I love art and music and so I try I try to challenge the right brain and i think actually you know reading fictional uh, books really help kind of transport you a little bit to a different mindset it certainly helps you take your mind off work sometimes yeah so yeah uh, so uh, you know i found myself getting getting into series books of books where an author would have a character and would you know there'll be 10 or 15 books on a particular character and uh, you know crime related books i was kind of interested in reading lots of those so i read all the jack reacher books until i got totally you know <laughs> jack reacher and the movies quite frankly never came close to as good oh i know i know uh, and then harry bosch was another series of books i was reading and uh but uh, but i also read you know books about things i don't know about right and you know about countries and you know, I'm just trying to think of, I'm trying to answer your question here, but I think one of the, my favorite books probably of the last five years was a book that was written by Walter Isaacson on Leonardo da Vinci. It's a big book and it's, but it's just a, he's a fantastic writer, firstly, you know, and to write a biography on a, you know, a, a person who, who obviously passed hundreds of years ago, but. Well, he's such an interesting fellow. He is a great Isaacson is just a phenomenal researcher. And what I love about the topic is, you know, it, 
it's an individual that that really exercised both sides of their of their mind you know they were just a phenomenal artist but also an inventor and a scientist and an engineer and you know so it was a great uh, a really great book to read because i think uh Isaacson did a really good job kind of toggling between the left and right brain of Leonardo da Vinci in, in, from his art to, you know, everything, all of his pursuits around understanding science and nature. And uh, so it's good. It's a really good book. He also wrote a couple of other really good books on, um, I think, Einstein and who else? He, did, he wrote another book on uh, uh, It'll Come to Me. Yeah. Steve Jobs, of course. Yeah. So, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, familiar. Okay, very good writer, and uh, I just, just uh, his style is great, and he's he's just really a great researcher into the tremendous detail and richness. So, so that's a good book if you really want. It's a big one, so if you if you want something, that well, takes I saw a while. the Steve Jobs one. That was a big one too. So yeah. I'm already kind of prepared. <laughs> All right. Well, so what's your most used business tool? I mean, you're a CTO, so I'm really anticipating your answer. No pressure. It's hard to pick one tool. We really big users of of Lean in Technib FMC, and so I think as a tool to kind of drive the thinking and our processes, it's something we you know, we are very passionate. You know, we fully subscribe to it. But you know, I think Lean is one of those ones where you, you say that people's eyes roll back in their head and they go, oh, okay, you know, because they've all been through through that journey at some point in their careers. <laughs> where uh, you know CEO says, okay, we're going to be lean, and uh, you know we're going to do Six Sigma, or we're going to do Five S, or you know. So you know, I think we we've taken a very practical approach to it, and actually, I think it's not so much about what you call the processes that you use, but really some of some of the key the key thinking, the way that you think, is really important. So you know, we have just we've tried to simplify it into into kind of big simple rules that we try to follow as a company and i think if if people were to kind of you know try so firstly don't try to manage from your office you have to get up and you have to go meet people you have to ask questions and you have to be respectful and so you know i I use those three things as a foundation of the of how i try to behave as a manager so you know i go and see so whether going see means you know, going to someone else's office, going to a manufacturing facility, going to one of our vessels, going to a service location, going to, uh, you know, research or engineering facility, you have to go. Uh, you know, Japanese use a term for, let's call it a workshop or within a, any facility called a Gemba. And so it's, it, it's important that you have to be in the Gemba. And the skilled the skilled labor in our industry are always closest to our customers. And so I think an important tool for anyone is to spend as little time in their office as possible and as much time in the Gemba. So go and see and then ask questions. Ask why. It's never a bad thing to ask why. Don't just accept you know, what you're being told. Ask why. Make sure you understand. Fully explore the subject matter um, you know, some sharing with you or, or you know, what you can see on the shop floor, ask why and, and show respect. Because again, the skilled labor is the ones that are closest to our customers. And uh, and I think if you can do those three, those three things, go see, ask why, show respect, you'll learn a lot. 
so I think, you know, as a, as a set of tools, whether you call them lean or you call them something else, and if you use all of them or none of them, that, you know, the basic principles of, of really being customer driven, you know, look, if it's, if you're customer driven, then you'll learn very quickly that value is really only what clients are willing to pay for. And if clients not willing to pay for it, then it's waste. So, yeah. And I think one of the things that you learn from a lean mindset is is how to eliminate waste. So, you know, being customer driven, understanding the value to a customer and understanding if it's not value, then it's waste is, uh, is super important. And you can't do that by sitting at your desk. You can't do that by reading email. You have to get out there and, and go and see your customers and, and go and spend time with, with your people. And and then I think that you know, obviously the obvious byproduct of that is you know i'm a i love people I, I, I love personalities and and the only way you can really you know embrace the tremendous uh, diversity we have in our industry of culture and and uh, thinking is to get out there and spend time with people and it's a uh, hugely rewarding and, uh, and again i think we're really blessed as, as an industry to have so much talent you just have to get out there and meet it and spend time start you spend time out there and it's just super rewarding when you can uh, visit you know again go go visit a vessel for example and, and spend time with the crew and spend time with the people on the back deck you know spend time with the people who are doing the installation commissioning of your technology that was born five years ago in an engineer's mind you learn a lot about about your technology you learn a lot about your customers and what the you know the value for them you learn a lot about the people and uh, you learn a lot about yourself so i think that would be it's yeah that would be my it's a long and kind of verbose answer but tried to capture as much of my thinking there as i could oh no i like that that was a great answer i just as an introvert kind of was just like i don't want to go see people <laughs> it's not it's not something that is natural for everybody i can tell you i was absolutely introverted when i started out in the industry and i'm certainly not the loudest guy in the room ever you know, whether you're in a room of three people or, or 300 people. But I don't think that, you know, should hold you back. You know, it just you just have to sometimes get outside your comfort zone a little bit. Well, I think you need to get out of your comfort zone a lot. And that's yeah. the only way you can grow. You do. And what you realize is that you just, uh, it's very rewarding for you as an individual. And people actually really enjoy that you spend time with them as well. So there is a, a benefit for everyone. That's truly one of the things that's been so difficult in the last 12 months. And I think no you know, kidding. We, yeah. we're blessed. It, had this have happened 20 years ago, I think the impact on, on companies and individuals would have been, would have been you know, much, much worse. But we yeah, have I agree. Technology that allows us to interact and collaborate, et cetera. But, but you know, what, you, what you realize after doing it for a year or 18 months is it becomes very sterile. So, you know, you have a team meeting that starts at a time and ends at a time. You have a subject matter and you kind of execute and it becomes very sterile. And then you move on to the next one and the next one. And now what is great now that we're starting to be able to, at least in some geographies, and I realize there's many parts of the world that are not are far from being over the worst of the pandemic. But in certain parts of the world, like the US and the UK and others, you know, we are starting to get back to back to the office, back to meetings, even if we are practicing social distancing. But the interaction is just phenomenal. It's just given me so much more energy. And I think whether 
you recognized it or not, I think our energy levels have been on a kind of a slow decline over the last year as you live in this artificial world in front of a screen. And, uh, you know, certainly since I've been back into the office and uh, we're unfortunately not allowed to travel too far at the moment, but looking forward to when we when we can. But just coming back to the office and, and our facilities here in the US where I am able to, to visit and travel, it's just it's so energizing. It truly is. And I know I'm, I'm actually excited about it as well. It's great. It really is. And, you know, just, and, and socially as well, being able to to go out and I just want to see my friends and colleagues exactly, and exactly. yeah everybody I mean, we haven't seen and, yeah you know, as a family we're, we're very cautious and actually I see a lot of caution in general uh, which is which is good but you do have to start to to try and return to some sense of normality and I just hope that the in the areas where there's still a lot of challenges you know we have a lot of colleagues in Brazil a lot of colleagues in India and and, and, and they are you know just just really far from seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And, uh, you know, we obviously hope and pray that uh, the situation improves in all of those places. Definitely. Absolutely. So who would you say is your most respected competitor? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I, I learned from former CEO that I had the great fortune to pour and closely with to be overly paranoid about all competitors. <laughs> So I kind of tend, <laughs> I tend to treat them all as equal, and I'm equally paranoid about them all because, look, I think there's a lot of things we do really well as a company, Technip FMC, but you have to recognize that every single company out there and, and every sem- single competitor out there does something better than you. Yeah. So, so you know, what is that and, and why? And, you know, what does it mean? And can you, is it something you can, you can apply to your business or to your process to improve yourself? So I think there's a lot to learn from your competition. You should always be paranoid about your competition. The day that you, you stop being paranoid, then I think you become perhaps complacent. So I think it's hard to pick anyone. There's, you know, obviously there's, there's, you know, bigger players in the industry, you know, you know one of which I used to work for, but so, but, you know, I, I think I'm paranoid of all of our competitors and, and I'm also open to understanding, you know, what they do better than us and, and how we can, how we can learn from that to improve, to improve as a company. Great answer. So why do you think your role now is important to the future of the oil and gas industry? I mean, you've kind of gone through everything so far, but, but why do you think your role now? is important to the future? I mean, I'm, I consider myself very fortunate to be in a role where I, I do have an influence along with my colleagues on the direction of, of at least the company that I work for and, and hopefully, uh, you know, a broader influence on the industry, you know, working with partners and, and competitors and, and working with our customers. And I think we all, I think we all have to, as much as we will always compete, we all want to make sure that the industry remains uh, relevant for the long term. And, and I truly believe that. And I'm, I feel passionately that, as I said earlier on, we have a, a really important role to play. So, you know, I'm, again, being in the position I am, I'm able to, to make sure that, at least for Technip FMC, that we're putting the building blocks in place to make sure that, you know, in our traditional business 
we're working hard to reduce carbon intensity to make it as as carbon neutral as possible and eventually carbon neutral if that's achievable and that will ensure the long the long-term sustainability of that business at the same time again as i said earlier i think if there is an industry that is going to underwrite from a a technology and a capability perspective and not necessarily from a financial or purely from a financial perspective but from a technology and a capability perspective if anybody's going to underwrite the energy transition it's going to be our industry and and so i'm you know we spend a lot of time thinking about that we do have a new energies business that is an emerging business that is kind of incubating within my organization and you know my my goal is that that grow and and eventually will become a, you know a large business in its own right so as I'm sure that, that, that many others are in, in the industry are doing also, certainly our customers and, and many of our competitors. So, you know, my job is to make sure that, that many decades after I retire, the Technip FMC is, remains in a leadership position as a technology company and, and supports others in the industry to make sure that our industry remains relevant for another 100 years. Perfect. So do you have a favorite podcast? <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm going to say this is my favorite podcast, but I, I would also, I do tend to, I listen to podcasts every day, in fact, when I drive to and from work. So some of them are kind of industry related like this, and like this podcast and, uh, and, and some others uh, within your organization. But I have to say the majority of my podcasts tend to be either motorsport related because I love motorsports and cars. And I'm also a massive fan of golf. So I listen to a few podcasts that are, that are kind of related to golf. So I would say 80% of them are either motorsport or cars and golf related and maybe 20% oil and gas related or industry related. So, yeah. but, you know, my son was telling me the other day that he's, he subscribed at Christmas to an audiobook streaming service. I won't name which one, but... And so he was trying to encourage me to to listen to audiobooks. So I'm, I'm thinking about that, and I might I might give that a try. I haven't fully exhausted the the podcasts yet, particularly around <laughs> racing and golf. I think there's there's still more to be done there. But at some point, I think I might start to try some of these some of the audiobooks on my uh, commute. Perfect. And for everyone that doesn't know, Technique FMC is a sponsor of the Oil and Gas Onshore Podcast with Justin Gaucher. So check that out too. Also, we have two new shows out, have the Energy Scale-Ups with Jose Solis, and then we have the Journey to the Energy C-Suite with Ryan Sanford. So guys, check it out. We're up to like, I think, 19 podcasts now within OGGN. Appreciate everybody listening and continuing to stick around while I'm changing sponsors right now. So uh <laughs> You know, that's how that works. Yeah, I understand how it works. Yeah. All right. So thank you so much for joining me, Justin. The conversation has been excellent. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Technique FMC, how might they go about doing that? 
I guess LinkedIn, I have to profess, I don't check in on LinkedIn probably as much as I should do, but if you did... Oh, you and me both. You and me both. You're fine I'll there. Get to it eventually, you know, <laughs> it might, might be a few weeks and if people are like, oh, I pinged you on LinkedIn and you didn't reply, I'm like, yeah, I probably haven't looked at it for a month. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's normally the, 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 the best way, or I guess you could probably go to the Technic website and you'll find me on there as well, so... And of course, we'll include links for everyone to just click on. So, all right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com. 